Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, and we'll be reading verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we present ourselves before you this morning in the name of your Son. We know that apart from him, we have no part with you. But that in him we are found, and that is our hope. Father, at least for my part, I, I am nothing. I can do nothing, I can gain nothing apart from you. And Lord, apart from your spirit and your wisdom, I will be nothing more than a seething demonstration of flesh. But I pray, dear God, that for the glory of your Son, for the benefit and well-being of your people, that you would help us this morning. That you would grant us grace. That we might understand your word. That we might be transformed by it. Father, I pray for this congregation. That they would grow, Lord, to the full stature and measure of your son. They would be conformed to his image. Father, I was not with you on that day when you drew from your own counsel and you do not need my counsel this morning. I do not know how you will bring this about or the correct path that you should design. But I pray that you would mature your people. You know what each of us need to be conformed to the image of Christ. So give us that thing that we need, Lord, even though we are fearful in the flesh. Strengthen us with grace. Make us like your son. And Father, I pray for any dear person who is here this morning that would not make a claim to Christ, that may be seeking, that may be questioning. Father, the words of men are so weak and the arguments have no power, but your spirit and your word, Lord, are sufficient. Please work in the heart of every person here that they may know your son and in knowing your son may know you, the one true God. 
Father, it's one of those times in which we would rather keep our eyes closed and talk to you than talk to men. But to talk to men is the reason for which we've been sent here. So please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. On the schedule it is said that I will preach from Romans 3. But last night I was so drawn to this text that's before us this morning. And I want you to take a look at this text. If you are a Christian, it will say much to you. If you are not a Christian, it will also say much to you. It will describe to you something of what the Christian faith is about. So if you have your Bibles, let's look in chapter 12, verse 1, and let's begin there. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now I want you to notice here, he says, present your bodies a sacrifice. You know, Jesus taught in the book of John especially that Satan is a liar. But when he was before the throne of God in the book of Job, he did say something that was true, whether it was by accident or with the purpose of even twisting the truth, he did say something that was true. After Job had been challenged with regard to everything he owned and his family, everything had been destroyed, he still did not curse God. And Satan said, yes, but touch his body and he will curse you. Because a man can lose everything, but touch his body and that is the great trial. Because that's all he has is his life. Take that away, everything else is gone. Here, the Apostle Paul and God speaking through the Apostle Paul, is asking you to give away the most precious thing that belongs to you. Your body. Now we're going to talk about what that means later on, but I just want you to see this to start off. Christianity is not something that you add to your life so that you might get your best life now. Although Christianity will most certainly improve your life, that's not what it's about. It is about surrendering your life to the one who made it. Not just following his external rules. No. But giving your life, your heart, all that you are to him. Living for him. You see, that's what man doesn't do. When you go to Romans uh, 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That last phrase has been so misinterpreted in the last hundred years. It's been interpreted, I think, through a humanistic mindset, especially in the West. They say, what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It means God has a wonderful plan for your life and you fell short of it because of your sin. And if you just get back with God, then he will allow you to become all that you were meant to be. That's not what the passage means. The passage means this. From Romans 1, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. You were made not for yourself. You were made for him. You were made for his purposes and his glory. And you see, the amazing thing about that is when God says that he does all things for his own glory. And when God demands that you live for his own glory... That's not selfish. It's actually the most loving thing He could do for you is to command you to give yourself to Him because that was the reason for which you were made. Now, it may be foreign to some of you, but 
Uh, I was raised on a cattle ranch, a horse ranch. And I was raised, since I was a little boy, hunting. We get our food by sometimes not going to the market, but actually going out and dealing with the matter ourselves. And as a little boy, I learned to make things. And then as I grew up, I learned to make bows and arrows. I can make a bow that you can use to kill a bear. It's a really big bow. It's a good bow. You have to be really strong to pull it back. It is a good bow. You can shoot a lot of animals and get a lot of food with that bow. You can't play music with it. So you don't want to take one of my bows to try to lead worship. In the same way, you don't want to take a guitar and go out and try to kill a bear. It will not go well for you. You see, they were made for certain things. And when they do the thing for which they were made, they're amazing. You take them out of their context and they're foolish, useless, impotent. You were made for Him. Not just to follow some pattern of rules or system of religion so that one day you can go to heaven. That's not what it's about. You were made for Him. To know Him. To know His beauty. His joy. His power. His life. So when God is saying, do this, for the Christian, it's not drudgery because our hearts have been changed. This is what we want. This is what we want. You see, Christianity is not about going to heaven. Did you know that? You know those little tracts that say, do you want to go to heaven? If so, pray this prayer. That's not what Christianity is about. You see, everybody wants to go to heaven. The devil wants to go to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. The Christian doesn't think so much about heaven. The Christian thinks about the God that's there. We want to go to heaven because God's there. We would dread the thought of hell. Not because it's a place of torment. We dread the thought of being separated from God. You see? So Christianity is unique in this. We have an ethic and we have a morality, but what you need to understand about Christianity is that we're not principally an ethic or morally based religion. We're a religion that deals with a relationship of love between the one who made us and saved us and us. And if we do follow rules, and there are rules, it is not to save us and it is not to earn the love of some deity. We follow them because He has saved us and He's given us His love. So when I tell you that Christianity is about giving the most precious thing you have away, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Now, but we are faced with a question. And that question is, hold it. You're asking me to give everything the most precious possession that I own, my own life. You know, as Christians, and I'm sure there are many sincere believers here today, you know many of the commands, you know what you're supposed to do. That's not the problem. If you're like me, you sit there and go, the problem is the power. The problem is the motivation. The problem is to stay in this sense of wanting to give our lives to God. 
And that's what Paul's doing here. And many people miss this when they look at Romans. After he tells us, well, in the context of telling us that we must give our life away, he tells us what the motivation for doing that is. And I want you to look because it's kind of tricky, but it's in the text. Now notice in the middle, he says of verse 1, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. But at the beginning of this text, he says something very important. He says, therefore. And then he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. I'm urging you to give your life away. And the motivation that I am going to give you in order to do this tremendous thing, it's the mercy of God. You say, well, what is that? Well, mercy is a really big word, and we'd have to spend a couple of hours going through the Hebrew and the Greek, and still, it would be much bigger than the hours we dedicated to studying it. It has to do with with God's pity. Now, pity for the weak, for the helpless, and those who have become weak and helpless for their criminal because of their criminal activities, it can also include that. Pity upon the pitiful. Compassion upon the weak. Grace to the guilty. So Paul is saying that we give our life away to Him because of His kindness, His benevolence, His mercy, His love, His grace. I could just keep going on and on and on. That's why we do this. You know, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that the love of Christ constrained him. That can either mean it held him back or it pushed him forward. It directed his life. You know, when Paul said that he was a prisoner in chains, prisoner of Jesus Christ, I think he was talking more than just about Roman chains. He was talking about the love of God in Christ that imprisoned him. He was like he couldn't escape the fact that God had been so kind to him in the person of Jesus Christ. He couldn't escape the fact that though he was a guilty sinner deserving God's condemnation, God sent his own son to die for him and raised him from the dead that Paul might be saved. And so the point that he's saying here is this. I'm telling you to give your life away and I'm telling you to do it because God has been so loving, so kind, so merciful to you. Imagine for a moment two women, and both of them are extremely devoted to their husbands. I mean, to the same degree of devotion, both women. One woman, though, is very happy, confident, secure, joyful. The other woman is miserable, insecure, nervous, afraid. What's the difference? This woman, who's nervous and afraid, she's serving her husband. She's devoted to her husband so that he will love her. This woman over here, so full of joy, confident, blooming, blossoming, she serves her husband and is devoted to her husband because he does love her. Because it's a settled matter. She knows She is unconditionally loved. Now, 
Look at the preposition therefore. The text in the Greek and in most literal, really literal translations begins with therefore. And why is that important? Whenever you see this preposition in the Bible, it's usually connecting it, or almost certainly always connecting whatever you're reading to whatever came before it. It's a conclusion. It's a summary. And that's what's going on here. So Paul says that you and I should give our lives to Christ, to God. Why? Because of the mercies of God. But what are these mercies? Well, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he spends describing the love of God in Christ, the faithfulness of God in Christ. That's what he's talking about. So let's look at that for a moment. First three chapters of Romans... What's it basically about? We've sinned. You know, when I tell you you're a sinner or I'm a sinner, in today's culture, that doesn't mean a whole lot. You know, some people laugh at sin, don't they? They, they use sin to advertise. They tell jokes about sin. They boast about their sin. Well, let me use another word other than saying you and I are sinners. You and I were sinners. Let me say this. You and I were evil. How's that? Evil. Self-centered. Proud. Foolish. My. If I could take the content of your heart back then, every thought you've ever had, and show it here on a screen, you would have run out of this building and never shown your face here again because you have thought and done things so wicked that you could not share them with your closest friend. We're sinners. Yes, and if it wasn't for the common grace of God restraining our sin before we came to Christ, we would all have been so wicked we would have made Hitler look like a choir boy. Seriously. That's what man is. So all have sinned. And we deserve judgment, everlasting judgment. Someone said, yeah, but I don't so much have a problem with hell because it's condemnation and judgment, but the fact that it's eternal, how can it be eternal? Two reasons. One is, God is an infinite God of infinite glory and deserves infinite devotion. To sin against Him is to commit a crime unspeakable. But also eternal for this reason that most people ignore You assume that people in hell repent. They don't. They continue in their evil. Hating one another and hating God. And if God were to throw open the doors to hell and say, all of you can come out, bow your knee to me. They would slam the door of their prison and say, I'd rather rot in hell than bow to you. Why is that? Because God's good. That's why men hate him. Men hate him because God is good. You say, how can that be? Why would men hate a good God? Because men aren't good. Do you know that I gave a lecture one time on the reason why men hate God is because God is love. And people said, I mean, that's all our society talks about is love and tolerance and love. And so why would we hate God for being love? Well, because when God commands you to love, it means don't leave your wife. It means don't put yourself first. And that love makes demands. It's not just poetry. You see, all have sinned. 
All have fallen short of the glory of God and all are rightfully under God's condemnation. You see, he really is a loving God. So he must do something with hateful, wicked men. But then we get to the last part of Romans 3 and we hear about, wow, instead of just condemning wicked men, God sent His Son who died a propitiation. What does that mean? It means that what happened there was... You see, here's the greatest problem in the Bible. Maybe you've never heard it this way, but it is the greatest problem in the Bible. It's what the Bible's written about. If God is good, He can't forgive you. Yeah, that's, the, that's what the whole Bible's about. How do you solve that problem? If God is righteous, He can't forgive you. Because He's righteous. And if He just swept your crimes under a rug, He'd be like the corrupt judges that we dislike. Evangelists sometimes say, instead of being just with you, God was loving. Well, that means God's love is unjust. And that's no good. No, God must be righteous. He can choose to be loving. But if He is loving... He still must be righteous. And so how did he do it? God condemned the entire world in their sin and demonstrated his justice. God sent his son who became a man, took the place of his sinful people and died on a tree in their place, suffering the wrath of God. And when the wrath of God was poured out on him, God's demands of justice were satisfied. Now God can be both just and justify wicked men because God himself took the sin upon himself and died in the place of his people. Now that's love. That's mercy. And then we get to, to Romans 4 and Romans 5 and it's all about justification by faith. That if you think you can make yourself right with your God by your works, then you've got one of two problems. Either your theology is really bad or your anthropology is really bad. You see, because the only way you can think that you can appease your God by your works is if you think your sin isn't really that bad or you think God really isn't that holy. But He is really holy and your sin's really that bad and that's why works do you no good. The only way you can be saved is an act of God and that's what He did in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? And then we get to, you know, we get to, to chapter 5 and we realize that, wow, there are two realms in existence one is your existence in Adam in which you're totally and completely condemned. And you're under, you're under the law. You're under the condemnation of the law. You're under sin. You're under death. There's no hope. But for those who believed in Christ, they move out of that realm and they're in another realm. It is the realm of Christ where there is justification and life and righteousness that those of us who deserve to be condemned, but because Christ died for us and we believe, we're now in a completely different mode of existence before God. Perfectly, legally righteous. And one day, we'll be transformed to be righteous in actuality. Then we deal with, we got Romans 6 and Romans 7 and Romans 8. Now 6 and 7, young Christian, let me tell you, those two chapters are difficult. But they're basically telling us this. God's done everything that He needed to do that we might walk in a way pleasing to Him. We're no longer under a law that doesn't empower us, but we're connected to Christ who empowers us to live a different way. And in 7, we're kind of warned that, well, however you take that chapter, the one central truth is this. 
You cannot please God in the flesh. And if you try to, you'll be miserable. But if you believe in Christ and trust in Him and depend upon His Spirit and His Word, you're going to do all right. Then we get to 9 through uh, 11. And we come to understand God's faithfulness even to an ancient people that have a pretty bad history of forsaking Him and about everything. And yet in the end, He still Shows himself faithful. So we have this great picture in chapter 1 through 11 of all the mercies of God toward us. And then Paul gets to 12 and he says, therefore, based on all that I've told you, now give your life away. Isn't it reasonable? And if you know what he said in chapters 1 through 11, you have to say, yes, sir, Paul, it's reasonable. It's the only reasonable thing I can do is to give my life away for him. You know, Paul does the same thing in in his other letters in varying degrees. Ephesians is a good example. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are probably the deepest theology in the entire Bible. In which, what is Paul doing? He's telling us everything that God has done for us in Christ. You see that? That's what those first three chapters are about. Everything God's done for us, the universe, the church, everything in Christ. Then he gets to chapter 4 and he says, therefore, live this way. And so the Christian life, to some degree, is like a balance in which you sit there and you go, you keep piling on. This is everything that God has done for us in Christ. More and more and more. It just goes on forever. As a matter of fact, heaven is going to be about that. Spending an eternity discovering everything God's done for us in Christ. And then it's, therefore, live this way. You remember the illustration I gave you about the two women? Well, if you're in some sort of works-based religion, you're the woman that's miserable. But if you're in Christianity, which is the only religion of grace, it really is then you're that woman that is confident and full of joy. You are serving Him. You are giving your life to Him, not so that He will love you, but because He does. You see that? Now, see, a lot of you who've just heard all that YouTube stuff of me preaching thought I was just going to come in here and rebuke everybody, didn't you? (laughs) Yeah, I knew what you were thinking. And some of you are kind of mad that I'm not up here mad. You thought, man, Paul's going to come in here today and he's going to get everybody. I wonder why they never put my sermons about love on YouTube. Just just the mean ones. I watch some of those things I scare myself. You know, Jude, he told us to contend for the faith, but something very balanced there. We have to contend for the faith. But if that's all you do is contend for the faith, then you're falling into heresy. Jude basically says in the book of Jude, in the introduction, he's saying this. Look, what I usually do is talk about our common salvation. And that's what I enjoy doing. But because of some false teachers, I've got to tell you to contend for your faith. So young guys, you're really fired up. You know, you're the prophet of Dubai. You want to tell everybody about their sin? Well, maybe God wants you to use you in that type of ministry. But if that's all you're ever doing... You're proud and unbiblical. You see? 
what we normally want to do is do everything we can to edify God's people. Because here's what you need to understand. If someone is genuinely converted, the greatest motivation for them to godliness will be the love of God in Christ. You see that? All right, now let's talk about the love of God. And this is what I really want to hit on here. Um, You need to love God more. Is that a revelation? Did you not know that? You need to love God more than you do. So do I. You really need to love God more. I mean, your love for God is pretty weak. You need to love God more. Okay, preachers are really good at telling us what we need to do. If you really want to mess up their sermon, raise your hand and say, I agree with everything you're saying, but would you please tell me how to do that? Every one of us, if we're Christian, we're aware that the greatest of all commandments is the one we've never really kept. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so there's an abiding sense at times of failure in our Christian life because we're well aware that we haven't done that. I was witnessing one time to this guy that I met on the street and he said, uh, well, you know, he said, I, ha- I haven't sinned in 11 years. That's what he said. I said, really? Well, that's amazing. I said, I have a question for you. What do you think is the greatest sin? He said, I don't know. I said, well, could it be breaking the greatest commandment? He said, well, maybe, I guess. I said, what is the greatest command? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I said, I've got you now. Because if you say you've done that, you've blasphemed. You're saying, I've loved God as much as He deserves. Sir, are you really willing to say that? He said, no. I said, then you have to say the opposite. You've sinned with regard to the greatest commandment. Do you know, no one in the history of humanity, now think about this, has ever loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I want you to think about something. Billions and billions, tens of billions, I don't know, hundreds of billions, maybe. I don't know how many people have walked this planet. But of all the billions of people who've walked this planet, no one for even a fraction of a second has loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet, Jesus Christ, there was not one second in his life that he did not love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. You want to talk about a champion? You want to talk about an overcomer? It's not just that he kept the Ten Commandments. He loved the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every beat of his heart, every thought of his mind. Wow. But you don't do that. Neither do I. But how can we grow in the love of God? Well, I'll tell you how most people do it. They do it in a way that defies physics. It's like there's a lot of Asians out there, so I'm sure somebody out here has studied physics because you guys are all so smart. Uh, so let's say that I, I'm, you see, you walk in here today 
and I'm laying down on the platform on my back. Okay? And I've got a hold of my belt. I'm laying on my back and I've got a hold of my belt and I'm doing this. And you walk over and you go, uh, Brother Paul? I say, yeah. What are you doing? And I say, well, isn't it obvious? No, it's really not. Well, I'm, I'm trying to get up. What? I'm, I'm trying to get up. And you go, well, Brother Paul, do you, do you people in the United States, do you study physics? Because in order to do that, you need to be acted upon. To do it that way, you need to be acted upon by an outside force. Something of an external fulcrum. Something's got to happen here. You can't do it that way. But that's the way most people try to increase themselves in the love of God. They twist themselves up. or They go to a conference, a choir of the fire or something. And they get all fired up about Jesus, but it lasts about two days. And then you're back to normal, waiting the next conference. Now hopefully that's not what's going to happen today in the conference <laughs> we're going to do. No, I'm going to make you all feel miserable, so don't worry about that. But isn't that what usually happens? Well, now let me give you an illustration before I show you what I'm talking about biblically. My wife is my wife. Man, she's beautiful. People think she's my daughter. Really makes me feel bad. Her name is Chado, and she is from Spain. And she's beautiful. First time I saw her, I thought, oh my. I couldn't breathe for like four days. Um, the first time I knew that I loved her, it was amazing. She was so young. She didn't have any gray hair. Man, I'll never forget that. I'm talking about God. You know, guys will come to me and say they're going to get married. Like somebody, I don't know if it was maybe they were here or here. They were talking about, oh, I met this girl and she's so spiritual and all this stuff. And I said, just cut through all that. <laughs> Is she like, bam, beautiful? He goes, yeah. I go, okay. Well, my wife was... Bam! Beautiful. And we've been married for 24 years. I love her now in a way that it makes what I felt 24 years ago look like nothing. But, you know, she's 24 years older. Her hair's a little gray. And honey, if you're going to listen to this, like on YouTube, you're still beautiful, okay? <laughs> but I mean, we all change. We all change. Why do I love her so much more now? I mean, in, in every way. Why? Well, it's not because I'm spiritual. It's not because, oh, I'm just such this spiritual man. And I don't love God because I'm just this amazing spiritual man. You see, here's, here's the way it works. She makes this happen to me. Now how? Over 24 years, I now have seen more of her virtue. 
more of her merit. I've experienced her goodness. And it's that virtue and that merit that I see in her that draws out of me my affections. So when I say I love her, it is more a compliment about her than it is about my great love. My love has been pulled out of my heart. My affections have been drawn toward her because of who she is. The more I know about her, the more I love her. Do you see that? Now, she's a human being. She's imperfect. But I just gave you the secret on how you grow in the love of God. The more you know about who God is and what He has done for you, and those two things are most manifested in the coming, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the more you know that, if you are Christian, well, let me say this, if you're not Christian, the more you know it, the more you'll be repelled by it. But if your heart has been changed and you're a Christian, the more you see of God, the more you see of who He is, the more you see of what He's done, then the more that's going to draw out your affections and you're going to be driven by it. Do you see that? We look at a man or a woman who loves God in an unusual way and we exalt them. That's how humanistic we are. There's something special because they have this love that is so foreign to us. We got it all wrong. We always turn turn everything into idols. They're not better than you. They've just seen more of God. Now, let me give you an example. Sometimes, you know, like seminary student or college student or somebody, they've just graduated with their Bible school degree or their master's or their Ph.D. or something like that. And they think, man, they're all they're ready. You know, I'll ask them this question. I go, before you went to Bible school, how many years did you dedicate to studying the attributes of God? And they go, what? I mean, how many years did you study God? Who is God? And they go, well, I didn't didn't do that. Well, when you went to Bible college, how many years did you dedicate to studying who God is? I mean, who He really is. And they go, well, I had a systematic theology class for one semester. And in that, I think it was about four weeks, we studied the attributes of God. Okay. Well, when you got your master's, those three years, four years, how many years was dedicated to studying the attributes of God? And they'll go, well, I don't know. I had two systematic classes, I don't know, six months. Okay. Okay, you got your Ph.D. now. Congratulations. Your Ph.D., how many years were dedicated to studying the attributes of God? Well, that, my Ph.D. wasn't in that. Okay, fair enough. So you've been a pastor now for 10 years. How many years have you dedicated to studying the attributes of God? You see what our problem is? The greatest of all knowledge that a person can possess is the knowledge of who God is. Do you know why there's so many self-help books in Christianity and so many 10-step books and all this? Because we don't know God. 
the more you know who God is, and especially God as he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the more your love will increase, the more your holiness will increase, everything. That in sort of, it's kind of like a fix-all. I mean, really. As a matter of fact, the more you know about God, the less you need your questions answered. I see people sitting around, they're, they're, they're in a, a stupor. They can't advance anymore in their Christian life because something's happened in their life and they just don't understand it. I don't understand why God did this. I don't understand why God's doing this. I don't understand why God took my son, why God did this, why God doesn't stop the war. Why? I have a friend that worked with me for about 10 years in Peru, Peruvian, and he showed himself so faithful it was during the war. We served in a lot of really bad and dangerous places. I remember breaking down in the truck in the desert. I didn't have any boiled water. He ran for miles to find a cactus. And then chopped it all up and brought it back and stuck it in my mouth. I mean, faithful. If he ran in this door right now, back door, and he screamed out, Necesito las llaves a la camioneta. I need the keys to your truck. I like my truck. I wouldn't ask him what he's going to do with my truck. I would just throw him the keys. I don't need to know what he's going to do with my truck if I know who he is. If I know who he is, I don't even need to ask a question. Because I know whatever he does is going to be good. It's the same way with God. It's knowing him. And knowing him, of course, you understand this in Hebrew and Gnosko in Greek, which carries over the Hebrew idea, even though it's the Greek language. Knowledge is factual, but also relational. It's both those things. You may know and understand me. It's the greatest of all knowledge. If you want to grow in the love of God, if you want to love God more. If you want to be able to deliver yourself over to God in a greater way, what do you need? You need to see more of His virtue and merit, His attributes, His gospel, what He's done in Christ. Do you understand that that's eternal life? You know, John 17, this is eternal life. What? They may know you. When does eternal life begin? The moment you believe. So what is the purpose of all this? The moment you believed, you started a race. The Puritans and other writers rightly attributed it to the different, well, to the kind of a, something that's used quite a bit in the book of Psalms. The idea of a deer. And as a hunter, I really know what this means. Tracking him out. Tracking him down. I've gone for hours and hours and hours through the snow. Tracking a deer. Losing the trail. Finding it again. Getting down on all fours. Feeling the ground. Tracking, tracking, chasing, chasing. That's what eternal life is. Students will sometimes ask me, they go, when I get to heaven, will I know everything? And I say, well, that's not going to help you on this exam, but I will answer your question. No, you'll know a lot, but you won't know everything. Because you see, God is infinite. and You'll always be finite. And what is heaven? Heaven 
is literally a continuation and an amplification of this race you're supposed to be in right now. Tracking out the glory, the attributes, the virtues, the merits, the beauties and the joys of God. Now, notice I used plural in all of that. Did you notice it? Merits, virtues. You know why? I'm being very Hebrew. When you're speaking Hebrew and you want to say, oh, there's a little pond of water, you say water. When you're looking at the ocean, you say waters. Plural intensifies things. His beauties that are infinite just keep going on. His joys, not carnal joys. Oh, far beyond that. Him. And that's what you're going to be do. You know, you know, you're going to understand everything about the second coming on the day it happens. But you're going to be in heaven and eternity of eternities, and you will not even have begun to see all the beauties of God in the person of Christ. And that's what you're to do now. You're to chase this down. You're to track it down. You're to run for it. People ask me, they go, you know, you're a pretty old dude now. How do you still say, stay all fired up, as people say? Theology. Theology proper. Studying who God is. His beauty. Studying what God has done for this wretched sinner who deserves to be condemned. Studying what He's done for me in the person of Christ. There it is. So you want to be more fired up? You want to love God more? So many times I hear even good Bible teachers, they'll go, now when you study the Scriptures, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, what is this saying to me about me? (laughs) Oh, don't do that. That's stupid. Don't do that. There's your problem. Every passage of Scripture you read, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, what is this saying about God? What does this reveal about God? Do you see that? And that's what this passage is about. People always put the emphasis on, man, you need to give your life away. But they don't tell you how. You want to do this. You want to do it more if you're a Christian. If you don't want to do this at all, then you're probably not Christian. You just got some religion. That's a very dangerous thing to have. If your religion is basically, I'm going to carry out these demands so that one day I go to heaven, you're in trouble. You're in a lot of trouble. That's why not the, this Christianity is not about that. I want to see him. In the same way, right now, I am very far away from my wife. I want to see her. I want her. I like our home. We live out in the middle of the woods with the bears. I really like it. But I don't care about seeing my home. I want to see her. It's Christianity. It's kind of flipped around. It's easier maybe for a woman to understand this. But we want to see Christ. The bride, the church, wants to see Him. 
And the more we see of Him here, the more we give our lives away. What makes some of these people, these historic people that we read about, their biographies, these missionaries, what, what makes them do these things of giving their lives away? It's not, I hate this, but it's not that they're special. It's not that they're somehow made of better stuff. When we say that, we're creating idols. They just saw more of Him. And that's what you need. And I don't care how good the preachers are here. If you just listen to sermons, you're not going to get there. This is, I meet with the Lord daily to find Him, to see Him, to know Him, to catch one more glimpse. I mean, when I went to Peru, I was like, I'm going to be a single missionary, the Apostle Paul to the Andes, and I'm going to die a martyr. I'm going to be an evangelical monk. That was my, that was my thing. And everything was going good until that woman appeared. I took one glance at her and I said, that's out the window. I'm getting married. Changed everything. One glance. Well, how much more? One glance at Christ. At Christ. How that changes things. And if you're here, you don't know Christ. We're not here to give you a set of rules or to make you join a club. You catch one. You study the Scriptures. Go to the book of John. Cry out. Say, I want to know the one true God. Read through that. Seek the Lord. Say, He talked about a beauty I know nothing about. I want to see this. You catch one glimpse of Christ, you will come to Him. You will come to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And I pray that You will use it in the heart of Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.